0: In 30 years, I will make sure there's no more fossil fuels.
1: In 30 years, I want to be a mentor to those who have been in my shoes.
0: In 30 years, I will have bought my family their dream houses for helping me when I was young.
2: In 30 years, how will California's charter public school movement evolve? And as we look back over the last 30 years, what have charter public schools accomplished? Hello, everyone. I'm Anna Tantakoulos, host of the Charter Nation podcast, and you're listening to the first of three special episodes marking the 30th anniversary of charter public schools in California. The state's first charter school law was adopted in 1992, paving the way for new educational options across the Golden State and influencing policies across the country. So let's kick off this special episode by going back in time three decades ago to 1992. That's Michael Jackson. He topped the billboards with Remember the Time, the same year Bill Clinton was elected as the 42nd president of the United States. The American people have voted to make a new beginning. The Internet was knocking on our collective door, and the Chicago Bulls, led by Michael Jordan, clinched the NBA title, beginning the team's six-year dynasty. Here in California, it was the dawn of a new era in public education with the passage of the California Charter Schools Act, the second law of its kind in the U.S. Today, there are 1,300 charter public schools in the state, serving 700,000 students. Later in this episode, you'll learn about State Senator Gary Hart, the man who authored California's charter school law. You'll also meet Ariana Baytop, the first charter school alumna we're profiling in a series called The Face of Charter School Success. But now we bring you a special interview featuring the founding president and CEO of the California Charter Schools Association, Caprice Young. Mirna castro CCSA's current leader, sat down with Caprice to talk about the beginnings of charter school advocacy and the movement itself. Caprice, thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers today.
1: My pleasure. It's really, really great
3: to be here with you. What was your connection to charters back in the early days before you became CCSA's founder?
1: Well, I think actually, you kind of have to start when I was growing up, because my mom is a special ed teacher, and um, and my parents, my biological parents, took in foster kids. Um, so I have lots and lots of brothers and sisters, and my my mom kind of made me the guinea pig of school innovation. If there was a brand new magnet school program. I went. If you know, if there was a, a school without walls, I was there. Um, so I had my own upbringing, had all kinds of innovation when it came to education, which was a huge blessing for me as a kid with terrible ADHD and a complete inability to sit still. Um, so that was that was amazing. But my very first encounter with the charter school movement was actually in the '90s when I was working as assistant deputy mayor. And Robin Kramer, who was chief of staff at the time for Dick Reardon, brought in this crazy woman from the Northeast San Fernando Valley um, named Yvonne Chan with this uh, charter school thing that she had just created and the importance of basically not taking status quo at the answer when kids are in need. And it was incredibly, incredibly inspiring. Um, And then I forgot about it for a couple of years and did stuff with IBM. And then got elected to the school board in 1999 as part of a slate of reformers. But at that time, there was still uh, the charter school movement didn't call itself a movement. Charter schools were just an innovation. Um, There were quiet revolutions happening, though, in the Northeast San Fernando Valley and San Carlos. And over the course of the four years when I served on the school board, I got to know these charter school people. You know, it was funny because, you know, when I'd go on a traditional school campus to visit, uh, most of the time it would be, this is a problem, that's a problem. Can't you just do X, Y, Z, that people would say to me. And then I'd go to a charter school and they would, you know, it was like a warm puppy saying, look at my robotics lab. You know, and yeah, when when I left the school board was about the time that Connect was looking for a transition. And Connect was the organization that predated CCSA. And I met Supergato, and the rest is what we 've been doing these last twenty five years
3: <laughs> absolutely uh, in, in that inflection moment when uh, connect cscc uh, and and the movement the impulse to really bring to scale the connection that we needed to mature into a full blown movement. That was the pivotal year, 2003. You became the founding CEO of the California Charter Schools Association, a brand new entity. How did people in Sacramento and in local communities respond to your initial efforts to catalyze this innovation into a full-blown movement?
1: The charter school leaders and teachers and students really took a leap of faith. And this was July of 2003. We had only recently gotten the cap lifted, so at that point we could actually add a hundred new schools per year. So we we had the opportunity to really grow the movement and, and I was like, well, let's do it. Um, and the foundation community, which was strongly supportive of charter schools and a good chunk of the charter school leaders were saying, we can't just be about choice for sake of choice. We have to be about choice for the sake of quality. And so the transition from Connect to um, CCSA was really all about that: was how do we create quality? And that required the charter schools to vote to create a new organization, to close down Connect and create a new organization, and commit themselves to quality. And they did. It was, and it was kind of dramatic. Um, Gary Larson and Julie Cruitt—she used to be Cruitt, now Cruitt Angley. <laughs> We, we jumped in Julie's Jeep Cherokee and we barnstormed the state for three weeks straight and, um, and visited thousands of charter school leaders who had, who gathered in their schools to be able to hear about this new organization and what they could be part of. We also knew that the time was right. So that was, that was kind of the initiation of it. And, remarkably three quarters of the schools in the state voted to join the new organization by getting three quarters of the state to actually join. Um, we were, we were able to sort of be the voice and elevate the voice in ways that were really, really profound. Every leader,
3: um, has their signature priorities or lenses or the way in which you approach life and your leadership and, I don't know if I've ever had the opportunity to tell you, but um, there's one caprice Youngism that I've carried with me uh, all these years since since we started this, this path together. And you said to me, the most important thing is to always mean what you say and do what you promise. But when you apply that concept, mean what you say and do what you promise to the development and the evolution of charter schools in California over the past 30 years, have we
1: lived up to that promise? We've actually done even more than what we've said, actually. And um, there was a, a dissertation that Maureen Kendall wrote about whether or not the charter school movement had fulfilled the promise that it had at the beginning. And she interviewed Gary Hart, who you know recently passed after an amazing life and what he said was they had no idea what they were creating that that it would turn into that it would turn into this they thought this was just a a path to some innovation and it's turned out to be a transformative movement i mean what what we were doing at the start of the california charter schools association was not just helping people open schools because the schools were already facing some really significant technical challenges for example, if a school, maybe a middle school got started and their first year, they had sixth grade. Well, the state didn't pay them until November. So what happened when they wanted to start their seventh grade, they were doubling the number of kids, doubling the number of space that they needed, doubling the number of teachers that they had, but they had no way to pay for those costs from July until November. That little technical gap was actually creating a big problem for uh, growth of schools so one of the things that we did at the Charter Schools Association really early was we created a cash flow loan program so that schools could have the money to be able to grow like that. And that's I, I bring up that example because what we were creating was an ecosystem, right? Mm-hmm. We weren't we weren't just helping people start schools, we weren't just running political interference and providing technical support. We created cash flow financing, we created the insurance J, jPA and the, um, we also did purchasing programs. We helped with facilities. And so the, the idea was to create a whole network, a whole infrastructure to support the charter school movement. And I think there are other ecosystems, system kinds of things that we still need to do now. We need to do a lot more focusing on charter school teachers. We need to do a lot more on boards and really engaging charter school boards in advocacy on behalf of the movement. Which they're doing very well in some other states. Um, but those first five years that I was the CEO, we had a very different political climate, too.
3: I would love to believe that part of our next challenge, we are now serving close to 700,000 students in California alone. You know, one in five charter school students in the entire nation attend a public charter school in California. There's the another North Star anchor that has evolved into greater relief through the potential of what our work can be, and that is equity. Um, and, and I constantly ask myself the question: right, in this era, can we build an ecosystem for equity that utilizes and builds on that operational innovation right of charter schools we we're seeing it in the pandemic those pillars of flexibility and autonomy that really enabled our schools to respond much more quickly much more urgently with a lot less learning loss with a lot more responsiveness and in the end the result of all that is a narrower you know learning gap experienced uh, by our students in this most challenging moment of a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic How do we turn those wins, right, growth, scale, into a real and sustainable voice for an ecosystem for equity that continues to deliver on our promise?
1: So first of all, we built equity into the charter school movement in California from the very beginning. We knew that from a moral and ethical perspective, the students that needed us most were the ones that were in the worst schools. And the worst schools generally are in the toughest neighborhoods. And that is both rural and inner city. And when you look at where we spent our money in the first five years, it was on purpose. And people don't realize that because those first five years, Marta Reyes was head of the charter office in Sacramento. And, um, and I was raising money with the foundations for charter school growth. And we collaborated around how to make sure that the money got to where the kids were needed. So mm-hmm. she applied for and received the largest grant from the United States government for charter school development throughout California. Um, I think the order of magnitude was about $85 million. And she was giving out the money in quarter of a million dollar grants to people who were starting charter schools. So that's what almost 400 charter schools that got open with that money. And she made it so that the money was available to anyone in the entire state. And then we took the foundation money that we raised, which was many hundreds of million and put that money into the specific zip codes where we had schools that were very low performing. So that meant it went into some of the denser urban areas of Los Angeles, of Oakland, of the San Diego area, uh, Fresno. So that was on purpose. And as we're moving forward, it's not so much that we have to change the movement as we have to double down on things that have been um, part of our, our mission and our DNA from the very beginning. And then the other thing that we're seeing is that as the founders have been retiring, and that's been happening a lot in the last 10 years, um, the founders have cultivated talent from within their organizations. And we're seeing new leaders of charter schools come in after founders who, um, who come from all different kinds of backgrounds. And who are already steeped in the DNA of equity and who carry that mission of quality and uh, that that is exciting to me
3: absolutely, and we can never lose sight that that is true our, our really true uh North star in everything we do, no matter how the movement continues to evolve and grow, so given those changing uh challenges and opportunities and our own learnings caprice, like how can we how, how can we as, as, as a charter movement in this moment, in this historical moment and where we are 30 years in, uh, what can we do to continue to increase our advocacy strength and better protect the movement?
1: So I think that uh, the most important thing that we can do is to make sure that everybody who works in a charter school or goes to a charter school or is on the board of a charter school or who has a kid in a charter school or is a vendor to a charter school. That they all know what charter schools are. It's always surprising to me when I enter a campus and the teachers don't know what a charter school is, even though they're teaching in one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think people who are in charter schools uh, take for granted the kind of fight that has to happen for us to continue to exist every single day. And and I know that you know if it weren't for CCSA's SHIELD and the hard work that you and your staff are doing every single day, that we wouldn't have the right to educate kids. And that's is—that's really important. People have to be brought into that um, from the very beginning and all the way through. The truth is that we are starting to, and have for the last, I think, decade, seen real change in the traditional public school system. In fact, what we are starting to see now is the result of competition. So I'll give you an example. Um, charter schools always do a ton of parent engagement. And in neighborhoods that have charter schools, we've seen the traditional public schools really step up their parent engagement um, out of, out of um, competition. The other, the other thing that we've seen is um, is the, the teachers union um, has been touting this idea of, quote, community schools. Um, and community schools, that's their answer to charter schools. And, you know, hallelujah, community schools are actually really cool. (laughs) Having, having a partnership between community-based organizations and schools to meet the whole need of a child or family. I love it. I love it. And if it, if it took us threatening to eat their lunch in order to get them to, to push for innovative things like that. Awesome. (laughs) Awesome. I'm, I'm a hundred percent for that. And I have so much confidence in this next generation of charter school leaders and, frankly, traditional public school leaders. And I think we're at a moment of inflection with the pandemic where where we all have a chance to do something incredibly positive and creative. Um, it's just going to take a lot of work. Absolutely. Well, we're up for it. Caprice is the founding president and CEO of the
3: California Charter Schools Association, and she continues to play an instrumental role in public education as the charter school movement in California continues to evolve. I am Mirna Castrejon, the current president and CEO of the California Charter Schools Association, and you have been listening to Changemakers on the Charter Nation podcast.
2: This is the Charter Nation podcast, and you're listening to a special episode marking the 30th anniversary of Charter Public Schools in California. I'm Anna Tintakoulos. Last month, as the charter school movement geared up to celebrate this milestone, the man responsible for the creation of charters in the Golden State sadly passed away. State Democratic Senator Gary Hart authored California's Charter Schools Act, the nation's second charter school law. Minnesota was the first to adopt a chartering law. That piece of legislation was authored by former Minnesota State Senator Ember Reichgott-Young. She worked closely with Senator Hart as he crafted his policy on the West Coast. Ember now leads the National Charter Schools Founders Library Initiative, Here she is with this remembrance of Senator Hart.
4: Hello, California. Gary Hart made all the difference for spreading chartering nationally. He is the reason why chartering is in 45 states. When his charter school bill passed in California, that was the first charter school law that passed in its original form without compromise. But Gary wasn't done. He met with Governor Roy Romer of Colorado and my friend Representative Peggy Kearns, and that state passed chartering in the next year. We sometimes forget that Democratic lawmakers and governors, including Roy Romer and President Bill Clinton, led the way for chartering and that it has always been a bipartisan policy. And that's what has sustained chartering for 30 years. And now I yield to my friend and my fellow lawmaker Senator Gary Hart in his own words. The idea of a charter was so unique and and difficult to sort of wrap one's arms around, Um, I wasn't sure that this was an idea that would fly and that in fact it might even be an embarrassment. So one of the questions that I asked, is there any place else in the world where this has been? Um, even introduced and I found that Minnesota not only had introduced it but had passed um, a charter law and Minnesota to me was not Mississippi, Minnesota was a progressive state that I had always admired and so that gave me uh, some courage to want to move forward with um, a charter bill here in California.
2: When Hart retired from public service, he returned to the classroom. Teaching history and English at Kennedy High School in Sacramento City Unified. CCSA would like to thank him for his public service and incredible contributions to public education. And now for our alumni series called The Face of Charter School Success. Granada Hills Charter High School in Los Angeles is an academic and athletic powerhouse in California. The school has a strong college going rate, especially among its students of color. Students like Ariana Baytop, who graduated last year and now attends Tulane University in New Orleans.
0: I love the buildings here, the architecture, the tall and narrow buildings and the detail to like the window trimmings.
2: I caught up with Ariana in between her classes through Zoom. She's just one of countless charter school alums from California who are or will be shaping our future. Ariana is studying business at Tulane. She's also on the dance team. Thanks to Granada Hills, she secured what's known as the Posse Scholarship given to an ethnically diverse group of high school graduates who are leaders in their communities. So Granada is a powerhouse in the charter school world in Los Angeles. I was curious which programs or classes really helped to prepare you for college.
0: The Humanitas program, IB, so many AP classes. I'm in college now and half of my friends are like, we didn't even have those AP classes. We only had two, you know, AP classes. What's the IB program? Like those types of things where it's like, you know, you have So many opportunities to learn and, you know, be the best, you know, person you can be and be the smartest person that you can be. They give you the choice to do that.
2: What I'm hearing you say is that Granada really did set you up for success um, for life after high school.
0: Yeah. So my, my classes, they don't feel hard. They don't feel like, like too hard. They don't feel like I'm doing too much work. (laughs) because I think I'm used to it from doing four years at Granada, taking AP classes almost every year um, and balancing, you know, my activities and stuff. So it's basically just a slight augmentation of that being at school. Um, And, you know, technically it's, you know, less class time during the day. It's not six hours. It's maybe three hours one day, two hours the other. Uh, So it's very manageable. It's very easy to get back into, you know, taking my notes. I was a very avid note taker in school. I still have my notebooks. <laughs> yeah, so just I feel like the rigor the academic rigor at Granada and like the classes that I took like the AP classes um they really prepared me for what to expect coming to college. I don't feel like it was too much of a transition as far as finding my new study habits and, um, you know, understanding what teachers are doing or how to, you know, get the best grade I can get. Um, And I feel very um, proud of myself for the first semester and this semester's going good too. And I feel like I have the habits that I picked up from Granada to think for that.
2: So now let's talk about what you're studying at Tulane. This is your second semester, your first year, second semester. It sounds like you want to be a business executive. Tell me a little bit about that.
0: I want to be an executive. <laughs> I want to be the boss. Um, yeah, I'm a business student. I'm, plan- I'm majoring in legal studies in business and business management and a minor in economics. But yeah, they have a lot of core business requirements here. Like Right now, I'm taking financial accounting and management communications. So I'm learning very, very useful things. I feel like I'm learning a lot. I'm also considering with that legal studies uh, major, considering maybe if I want to go into law too, um, but either way, having legal studies when you're in business is a good foundation to have. I'm also taking classes outside of Tulane to get my real estate license. I know a lot of business people have, you know, side things they do such as real estate. And I feel like that'd be a great thing to have.
2: I'd love to know what your, what your parents tell you or or what do they say to others?
0: Yeah, my mom and my dad, they're really proud of me. They're always talking to our family members and friends about uh, my accomplishments and whatnot. My mom actually tells me to stop doing so much she was like, Ariana, you're going to burn yourself out, you know, make sure, like, if you need to stop doing that community service organization that you, that you stop, because, you know, your grades are more important and stuff like that. So she actually tells me to slow down.
2: So my last question is about being a scholar of color. You are biracial, half Black, half Hispanic. Do you feel um, a certain amount of Responsibility to continue this academic journey at Tulane.
0: So Granada, I felt was very diverse um, because the schools I went to previously were not. I went to a predominantly white school, then I went to a predominantly black school, then I went to a predominantly Latino school, and then at Granada, there's a large percentage of Asian Americans. There's a large percentage, you know, of white people. There's a lot of people of Arabian descent and Syrians and there's just everything there's everything it's melting pot um I feel like seeing that and knowing the resources that Granada has was very important because it's like you're thinking you know people that are like me people of color at Granada they have those the same resources I have to get to where they want to go in their life it's a very good strong foundation for everyone especially people of color and it's very important that if you want to continue education to higher education, you know, cause some people don't want to, having these resources and knowing that you're capable of doing it is very empowering. Cause again, like I said, Granada really prepared me for college and I don't feel left behind.
2: I'd like to thank Ariana Baytop for taking the time to speak with me as a face of charter school success. Ariana graduated from Granada Hills Charter High School last year, she's studying business at Tulane University. And check back in a couple weeks for our next charter school alum profile. You'll also hear from Jed Wallace, the longest serving president and CEO of the California Charter Schools Association. We're growing charter schools because we see charter schools as a unique way to be able to push the whole
1: system to purge itself of inequities that makes public education not do its fundamental thing, make opportunity more broadly available to all in our
2: country. That's next time on Charter Nation's Charters at 30 podcast episodes. I'm Anna Tintakalis. Thank you so much for listening.